This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. As we just mentioned, the makeup of a changing Supreme Court could impact some of the recent legislation that has had a positive impact on the LGBTQ community. It has been well documented, the stance that President-elect Trump has taken in the past on these issues, as well as his stance on immigration. And his election has millions of people in these communities very concerned about the future. In fact, many of you may have seen the variety of uh, marches that happened yesterday uh, in cities across the United States. Penn Law Professor Tobias Barrington-Wolf joins us in studio to discuss what is going on here right now. Great to see you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for coming in. Uh, Obviously, there's so much talk about this right now. Obviously, the run-up to the election, things that that, uh, Mr. Trump has said. Uh, How concerned are you right now for for what we may see going forward? Concerned is not the right word. Uh, I don't want to mince words here. I think that the election of this man to the presidency is a catastrophe for the rule of law. I think it is a catastrophe for our institutions, uh, our public institutions, our institutions of government. And I think that we have a struggle ahead of us. I think we have a struggle ahead of us to defend the values that we care about. I think we have a struggle ahead of us to defend decency and to defend compassion in our government and in our laws and in our public institutions. And I take great solace in the fact that uh, Mr. Trump received fewer votes in this election, not only than Hillary Clinton, but he received fewer votes by a very large margin in this election than President Obama did in either of his two elections, and fewer also than Mitt Romney did in 2012, and fewer also than George W. Bush did in 2004. That speaks a lot to the issue of both the need of the Democratic Party and the need of people who don't share the worldview of this man to engage the electorate and to fight against the voter suppression efforts that I think had a lot to do with decreasing the number of people who turned out. But uh, this has been a tough week for a whole lot of people, myself included, and a scary week, uh, not to be, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, I have been scared this week yeah. about what my government is going to look like and about what my government is capable of in a way that I haven't been in my adult life. But I take solace in the knowledge that there is a majority of the voting electorate that rejects what this man stands for. And we did not prevail in this election. And it is right and proper that both Secretary Clinton and President Obama have accepted the results of the election. It speaks enormously to their character and to their statesmanship that I don't think anybody ever had the slightest question that would be the case. And that they've done so with generosity of spirit. Uh, But we are entering into a period of struggle. And uh, we can talk a lot, as is proper, about LGBTQ LGBTQ issues, which are going to be on the front burner. Uh, But the struggle is going to go much more broadly than that. Well, you mentioned the rule of law, and let's dig into that a little bit further, because uh, obviously uh, the the power that the president has in terms of executive order is one that, uh, as we were talking before we went on the air, it goes back... A uh, hundred years in terms of its actual use, I, I mentioned if it feels like it's become more of an issue that we see in the media only within maybe the last year or two with President Obama making some of the moves that he has. So uh, get into your concerns about the rule of law. Sure. Uh, well, a couple of things. First of all, 
there's a particular context in relation to executive orders and, and President Obama, which really honestly has to do with the kind of scorched earth obstruction that congressional Republicans embraced uh, when they took control of both houses of, of Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it, we, we have discussed a lot over the last years that uh, congressional leaders, when they took control of both houses of Congress, made it clear that their top priority was to try to deny the president a second term and then to simply obstruct everything that he was trying to do to advance the interests of the American people through sensible legislation. Right. And as a consequence, the president turned to the powers of his office and tried to explore ways in which he could use those powers to advance important policies. And that's why we had a, a lot of conversation in the media about so-called executive orders. Uh, a lot of what the president and his team accomplished was also done through regulation, um, through the, the actions of administrative agencies. And, and that's particularly true in the field of LGBTQ rights. And, and we had a, deba a debate, and that was an appropriate debate, about the extent of that power, which of course is not at all without limits. Yeah. And for example, there's a lawsuit in uh, uh, Texas right now in which a federal district court has issued a, an injunction relating to some of the actions that the president has, uh, or the president's administration has sought to take to enforce Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 relating sure. to sex equality within universities. There were similar lawsuits about some of the president's executive actions in relation to immigration. And, you know, what everyone thinks about the merits of those particular cases, it's appropriate for the courts to be defining the limits of executive power. And uh, in case anybody missed it, uh, we are entering into a period where enforcing the limits on executive power is probably going to be very important. But that's a lot of why we've had much more public attention to the issue in recent years is because... Right. The, the level of obstruction, which was really quite unprecedented in the modern era that President Obama encountered in Congress, forced him to look to his powers as president to see what actions he could take. And let me give one specific, a specific example. There's lots that we can talk about. Uh, we don't uh, have in this country a federal statute that provides explicit protections for LGBTQ people from discrimination in the workplace and in right. places of public accommodation right. uh, or housing for that matter. We have uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits sex discrimination. And courts are right now asking questions about the ways in which that protection applies to anti-transgender discrimination and also to anti-gay, lesbian, or bisexual discrimination. Very important conversation. But we don't have a law that says explicitly sexual orientation, gender identity, or protected categories in the workplace, in housing, in places of public accommodation. So a few years ago, the president uh, turned to an existing executive order, which already carries into effect the... Uh, provisions of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And it's an executive order that says that when private businesses are engaged in contracting work with the federal government, mm -hmm. they're providing goods, they're providing services to the federal government, if they want that business, then they have got to abide by certain workplace protections within their own shop. Sure. And the president turned to that executive order and just expanded it to by adding protections based on sexual orientation and gender identity uh, to those existing protections. And it, so it wasn't wasn't a new executive order. It was just applying it to a couple of new categories of discrimination, which ended up being very important. And, and it's it's been on a couple fronts because many of these people that were working for these companies ended up being contract employees and weren't necessarily employees of the company, which you know was a, was was a big step to take. Sure. Well, the one one issue is whether people are employees or contractors within the company. Yeah. Uh, that's that's one conversation, but there's a very large number of people who are you know just straight up employees 
of private companies, and those companies are in turn doing contracting work with the federal government. Right. And, and that's what this executive order covers. Okay. And, uh, I mean, an, another example, uh, equally important, uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, right, HUD, yep. has uh, took some actions a while ago now, about four or five years ago, that related to protecting transgender people from discrimination in HUD-subsidized public housing and in access to mortgages, which are types yep. of protection for... <laughs> Housing, in particular, which is an issue that a lot of trans people uh, face a lot of discrimination around, that they had never had before. And we, we could spend a very long time talking about, up and down the line, the types of protections that LGBTQ folks enjoy uh, for the very first time in their uh, interfacing with the federal government and federal laws and policies because of the actions of this president. And they took many, many years of very hard work to put into place. When you're right. actually trying to make that kind of public policy and do a good job and hear from all the stakeholders and make sure you're calibrating the policies correctly so that they're benefiting the right people but not imposing harms upon uh, other people in the workplace, that takes a lot of work. And the president and his team spent years and years doing that work. And all of that progress is subject to revision by a future president. And... Um, the man who's just been elected to the presidency, to be perfectly honest, I don't know what he actually personally believes about LGBTQ issues. Right. Uh, like most things, I don't think that he particularly cares about that issue. I don't think he has any particular core beliefs about it. I think mostly what he cares about is gratifying his own needs and enriching himself. That seems to be his lifelong pattern. But he has surrounded himself with a team of people who are lifelong, hostile, anti-LGBT advocates. And to give just one example, uh, there is a flowchart which is circulating around Washington, D.C. right now, which lays out <clears throat> the personnel that are being proposed for the president-elect's administration, or, or rather the transition team that will be in charge of uh, putting together the administration. Right. And uh, the person who's been identified as the head of the domestic policy part of that team is a man named Ken Blackwell. And Ken Blackwell, among other things, uh, works and has worked for the Family Research Council, which is one of the primary anti-LGBTQ advocacy groups in the United States. Right. So whatever Mr. Trump actually believes about these issues, and once again, I think like many things, he doesn't really have any particular beliefs about these issues, um, but he is putting people in place who have spent much of their adult lives trying to find ways to deny equal treatment to LGBTQ people. This is a an alarming, alarming uh, situation. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. We're joined in studio by Penn Law Professor Tobias Barrington-Wolf. Uh, let's go to San Diego. Ricky joins us on the show. Go ahead, Ricky. Hi, it's Vicky, but that's okay. Oh, I'm sorry, Vicky. I apologize. No, don't say that. Thanks for taking the call. I am an evangelical Christian, and I am also an attorney. So I can totally understand what the risk was for Hillary Clinton to have been appointed, uh, been elected as president. Here's where I believe that the evangelicals, the reason that they came out. The churches have always enjoyed a right to speak from the pulpit on the issues that they believe are relevant and important and foundational to their faith. With, with the wrong judge on the court, if those issues were deemed to be offensive or discriminatory, the churches were concerned that there was going to be a risk to lose their tax-exempt status. This happened when the Sea Scouts did not want to put LGBT people in leadership positions in Berkeley, California, 
and the courts in Berkeley, I believe it was the, uh, I don't know if it went up to the California Supreme Court or if it was the circuit court, they said that although the Sea Scouts had the right to discriminate, they did not have the right to enjoy a tax-exempt status in the city of Berkeley. This was a Sea Scouts case. It went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court would not hear it on cert. So this is what is foundational to the rights, not only of the LGBT community, but to the people who don't agree with their positions. They want the right to be able to speak, and they want to be able to continue to enjoy the tax exempt status that the churches have always been afforded. So this is what is crucial to who sits on this Supreme Court. The churches do not want to lose their right to speak and, right. not, and, and risk their tax-exempt status. So I don't okay. think that that came out. I don't think anybody articulated it. But I do believe that the, the people who understood this risk, that's why the evangelical vote came out for Donald Trump. Vicki, thank you very much for your comment. Yeah, uh, Vicki, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that input. And let me say a couple of things in response to it. Um, first of all, one of the... Uh, one of the rallying cries that a lot of uh, folks who try to uh, get support from the evangelical community have used is a really false claim, and this is not what Vicky's talking about, but it's related. Let me just make that clear. A false claim that uh, uh, pastors, ministers who are preaching from a pulpit and who have very hostile anti-LGBT views are somehow going to be prevented from preaching from the pulpit. They're going to be put in jail for hate speech. They're going to be told that they're not allowed to preach what they want to preach. And that's never been true. And that's never been even a little bit true. And just to be clear, I am a gay man. I am a lifelong or an adult career long advocate for LGBT rights. I'm also a scholar and teacher of the First Amendment. And if anybody attempted to take such a step, I would lay my body across the tracks to keep it from happening because that is a, a violation of the First Amendment in the, in the most you know, direct possible terms. Um, the issue of tax-exempt status has, which is a special benefit that some kinds of entities and organiza- organizations have in the United States, has been, um, in my experience, a conversation not primarily about churches, but about other kinds of tax-exempt organizations, uh, educational organizations, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, the question of whether it's appropriate to give tax-exempt status not to churches, but to not-for-profit entities that serve various public purposes when they are engaged in discriminatory conduct is a serious one and one that we need to take a look at. Uh, My understanding is that all of the challenges to tax-exempt status have not been about organizations that espouse certain kind of views, but rather organizations that actually have discriminatory policies that say, if you are a student on our campus, you are not allowed to engage in interracial dating, which is one of the major precedents in this area, that if you want to participate in our group, you're not allowed to be a gay scoutmaster. Um, I'm not aware, and maybe Vicky or others can educate me, of efforts to take tax-exempt status away from churches because of the views being preached from the pulpit. And once again, if we have a rule that says that churches get tax-exempt status, we are not allowed to pick and choose which ideas right. and viewpoints we think are appropriate. And churches are constitutionally protected in their ability to have whatever policies they want when it comes to who gets to be a minister, when it comes to how they administer the sacraments of their church. And the Supreme Court has made it very clear that that's a, a free exercise of religion, constitutional right. And once again, I would defend that myself. So I understand Vicky's concern. I think that it's partly 
a concern that is generated by a lot of rhetoric that we've heard that's not very accurate right. about the ways in which courts might start targeting churches. And specifically on the issue of not-for-profit entities that want to have tax-exempt status, but also want to be able to engage in discriminatory policies, respectfully, I think we need to have a conversation about whether that's appropriate, because tax-exempt status is a special benefit. And regardless of exactly. what your views and ideologies are, which I think are not a proper basis for targeting organizations, if you have discriminatory policies, we have to ask whether we should be subsidizing those discriminatory policies. And that's where that that's where that question comes up. Vicki? Well, I I appreciate the comment. Here's, here's where I think there's a, a little bit broader concern. A lot of the churches do have other arms other than just speaking on a Sunday. They have nonprofits that they are um, organized for community benefits, such as homeless shelters, even Christian schools. So it's not just limited to a very small and narrow right. uh, pulpit um, conversation. It, 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 it extends. And once again, you see the position that I've just heard here, well, maybe we should re-look at that. Maybe we should see if these, if these organizations are benefiting from the government and then they also are allowed to discriminate. And so, you know, we're concerned that this is a regulation of, of speech, and we, we think that this is why it's crucial that the person who is put on the Supreme Court understands right. that free speech is free speech. Vicki, yeah. thanks, thanks very much for the call. Greatly appreciate it. 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call. 844 942 7866. Let's go to Nashville, Tennessee. Chip is on the line. Chip, go ahead. Thanks for taking my call. I was just curious why we can't um, use the EEO laws that are on the book that have discrimination. They, I mean, we already have those laws on the book. Why will that not apply to the LGBT community? Great question. Thank you for that. And the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, under President Obama has been doing very important work in interpreting those laws that are already on the books. You're exactly correct. And the EEOC has issued uh, a pair of opinions which uh, interpret and apply the existing civil rights law to extend sex discrimination protection to transgender people and also to gay, lesbian, and bisexual people. Those have been very important advances. Now, the EEOC can bind the federal workforce and can impose its, its interpretations of those laws are binding within the federal workforce. They're not binding on federal courts when it comes to how they interpret those laws when they get enforced in the private workforce, right? So a lot of people who need the protections of the Civil Rights Act uh, are people who work not for the government, but who work for uh, in the private sector. And uh, as those issues begin coming in front of courts, they are looking at those interpretations by the EEOC, but those are not binding. Now, uh, one of the powers, one of the many powers that a president has is to appoint commissioners of the EEOC. And one of the areas where I very much expect the, the president-elect to have a sharp course correction, or course change, rather, is uh, in the personnel that he applies to positions like commissioners of the EEOC, and whether they will be willing to undo all of the important work that the EEOC has done is a major question. 
Great uh, comment, Chip. Thanks very much for the call. 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We're joined by Tobias Barrington, Wolfpen Law Professor, joining us here in the studio. Again, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Uh, obviously, uh, immigration and illegal immigration is one, one topic that obviously has been brought up during the election process. And, and one of the issues that I know is of concern to many people in this country, and, and it it's one that's been brought up here in Philadelphia, is the concern over sanctuary cities. Uh, where where are we headed with that? Because a, a lot of people would like to see sanctuary city status eliminated, uh, especially here in, in Philadelphia. There obviously have been a couple of cases where a, a, a person that has been protected from deportation you know, uh, being being here in the city of Philadelphia. So um, I'll say candidly, for starters, this is not an area of particular expertise for me. But right. my, my understanding is that a lot of the on the ground, uh, uh, the, the on the ground uh, action that a city can take is simply declining to offer uh, affirmative cooperation with federal authorities in yeah. the enforcement of the immigration laws. Uh, we have a supremacy clause in this in our constitution, which says that federal law is supreme over state and local law. And so cities cannot subvert federal law. But we also have uh, a set of principles, including an interpretation of the constitution by the Supreme Court, that says that if state or local officials don't choose to be the agents for carrying into effect federal policies, then they can't be forced to do that. Right. And so my understanding of a lot of the debate around this so-called sanctuary city uh, policy simply has to do with cities saying, if the federal government is going to be enforcing immigration laws in a way which we think is terribly inhumane and indeed causes damage within our communities and within the willingness, for example, of communities to view law enforcement officers as productive and cooperative parts of their community rather right. than sources of danger, then we are going to choose not to be a part of the enforcement of those laws. If federal authorities want to enforce those laws, that's on the federal government. And the intertwining of federal and local and state governments in a whole range of different policy areas makes that uh, a more complicated proposition than I've just stated. But um, once again, with, with the caveat that this is not an area of expertise right. for me, that's that's my understanding of what that's about. Well, it, it, let's go uh, to another, which uh, we brought up before and we've uh, talked about before, is North Carolina and, and House Bill 2. Mm -hmm. And obviously this is uh, a, a, a law that has brought unbelievable anger by a lot of people. Uh, where do you see that going, uh, you know, in, in the course of the next few years? Well, I think we need to talk about laws like HB2 on a couple of levels. First of all, just the law itself in North Carolina, the legal challenges to that law. Uh, you know, this is a form of discrimination based on sex and gender identity that is, is just cruel. And if you, I mean, if you start from a basic statement of reality, which is that transgender people exist. Yeah. Transgender people are members of our community. They are as fully entitled to dignity and respect as anybody else in our community. And then you start having a conversation about, well, then where should they go to the bathroom? Uh, you know, the only sensible answer is that they should use the facilities that are right for their gender. And indeed, that's what they've been doing without any problems for yeah. the entire time until North Carolina decided to pass a law that made this a, a, a huge issue. Um, so the lawsuits around HB2 are, are moving forward and, and, you know, the composition of the courts is going to be pretty important in figuring out what happens to them. But there's a broader issue here. And the broader issue is what kind of atmosphere is 
this man's presidency going to create when it comes to the feelings of safety and the feelings of welcome in their communities that transgender people and a whole lot of other people feel. And I want to say again, reiterate what I started with, um, this man has won the presidency and he has won the presidency. Yeah. He has won it with fewer votes than most of the candidates, both successful and unsuccessful, that have run for the presidency in the last 12 years. Yeah. And we need to not lose sight of the fact that there are tens and tens of millions of people who repudiate the kind of ugly hatred that he structured his campaign around. But we cannot fail to recognize that the president sets a tone and the president uh, validates and, and, and you know, brings into the forefront ideas about how people should be treated. And trans people are going to be one of the communities that are going to be most endangered. So in your mind, he has a lot of work to do in a very short time to, to tr turn his viewpoints around on a lot of different areas. Well, that's one way to put it. Although, t t once again, I, I don't look to him for that. Okay. Because I don't think he has viewpoints on many issues. Okay. I don't think he particularly cares about many issues. I think most of what he cares about is his own ego and the ratification of his own needs. But I think he is surrounded by a lot of people and he will put into his administration a lot of the people who do care about these issues and care about them in a very negative and inhumane way. Right. And I think what we have in front of us is a struggle to hold close to what we believe as a people and to defend our values and to insist that those values start to be a part of public policy and, and to fight back against the erosion of those values and the erosion of basic matters of compassion and human dignity. And that's, I think, part of what's in front of us. Great to see you again. Thanks, Thank you Tobias. Much, Thank you for coming in. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.